I'm Nicolene Berger and I'm Joana Fosler and this is Eret. listeners welcome to another episode of Eret we are doing another mini so today so we are going to be talking about what makes something art and that's not the only question you'll see as the conversation unfolds we're going to touch on a lot of the that relates to this topic and this conversation that we're having today is a little bit like a philosophy of art 101 question uh, and we thought that was appropriate since this is a podcast uh, featuring conversations between an artist and a philosopher. We thought this is the perfect way for our different specializations to merge and come together and to really talk about the a more philosophy of art type of question. Often when having conversations with people about art, like you'd hear a response similar to, I don't really know art. I can't really talk about art. Uh, I don't understand art. And so there's something about like that art isn't accessible to me or it's something above me that sometimes comes out. So we at Eric think that when you speak about art, you are already participating in art. So this conversation adds to art and we hope to make conversations about art more accessible through this podcast. And one thing that one of my painting lecturers used to tell us at university that I found really encouraging as an artist, Kulain Streidung used to say that um, every time you make a mark, you are adding to the history of art. I remember him saying this once and it really struck me because that idea of just creating a masterpiece or analyzing an artwork with very highly academic words, I always thought that that was the most important thing, but you forget about the little marks and the little things and the little conversations like a mini-sode about art that can also add to this wonderfully um, yeah, abstract and strange history um, of expression. But then at the same time, people have different tastes and you get something where people say, this is art or this is not art, this is good art or this is bad art. And in the history of art, we can see different movements that have shown how our understanding of what makes something art has changed and you can also reference I think our second episode where we spoke about art and philosophy in times of crisis where we gave a bit of a trajectory on how the, the public viewed art and specifically a theme that uh, will come up in today's episode is you get something what was called the the movement the avant-garde movement and avant it's from the French word um, and it means going forward or you know the, the, those at the forefront of art and the artistic movement but then, like any, there's always a butt of the joke. <laughs> and there's also what people call rear guard, which is like at the back of it, the more distasteful, unsophisticated. There's a lot of words you can that was used to describe it. But what we know the word as is sometimes called kitsch art. Yes. So 
another thing that we often hear when people speak about art is when you look at an art piece, people can't understand how it is valued. You'll often hear people say, but my five-year-old could have done this or my child could have drawn this picture better. And an example of this is a banana that is taped to a wall. It's quite a famous piece now and it's called The Comedian. And it was valued at $120,000. Now, what on earth makes this banana and a piece of tape so valuable? And moreover, what is the difference between the rotten banana in my fridge that I might or might not use for a smoothie <laughs> one day and this very expensive banana, which actually, if you buy it, it's not like you buy a rotten banana, like you buy a concept of taping a banana to a wall. And what is this difference? And how is it that we have the same object, but we value them so differently? Yeah, so these questions are very important and we ask about the definition of art so that we can value art more consistently and also distinguish between the rotten banana in the fridge and the banana that's in a fancy gallery. Um, but like Jana said, this idea broke down a little bit and we'll get to that a little bit later. So is a definition of art possible or even necessary? is where the philosophy of art comes in. And there's an author called Arthur Danto. He's an American art critic, art philosopher, and he was a lecturer at the University of Columbia. And he was really interested in this question. So while he said, might, many people might think like aesthetics and the philosophy of art are synonymous. So what does it mean for something to be beautiful? But what Dante argued was that there's a big distinction between the two, because where aesthetics is maybe a consideration of how something appears to the senses, and there's maybe an argument of superiority in terms of this thing is more visually pleasing than another. The philosophy of art, on the other hand, is more of an inquiry in terms of what distinguishes art objects from other things in the world. So how can we differentiate between what is art and what is not art? And in order to ask this question, you know, what is the value of art or what is good art, you need to ask what is art? And this is where this kind of definition comes in. But as we see over time, it's really hard to define art. And this is because the artist's role for a long time was very clear. Artists were documenters of culture, of um, religious events, of history, all of these things. And specifically, way back then, you know, those like old uh, portraits of families or paintings by Michelangelo or Leonardo da Vinci. They were all kind of in that area of documentation. And then the camera came and things changed. And so we see with this trend in art history that often as technology advances, the artist's role were changed. And like in episode two, where we discuss the breakdown of the public's interest in art, we see that that was because the artist was kind of left alone to decide what his or her role was in society. So this breakdown of the public's interest relates to the difficulty of the question around how we can distinguish an object from an art object. And this was really brought to life in the more like postmodern 
movements like Dadaism and the kitsch art movement as well, where uh, it kind of exposed this question of it's not necessarily something beautiful or something depicted, but it's maybe turning the question of what is art onto itself in terms yes. of where art is placed. Yes, so kitsch art, um, just to give a little bit of illustration, we're going to unpack that later, but a famous artist in kitsch art that comes to mind is Tretikoff, which had a, he had a lot of success in South Africa. And a few years ago, you could see a Tretikoff print in almost every Mr. Price home and in every, every other home, you know, that people, that it blew up for some other reason and kitsch art became even more like everyday objects than it already was and Andy Warhol is a pop art artist that also did this with art where he looked at the mass production of art and kind of mass producing art objects and then also the question comes in well is this just a mass produced object or is this an artwork and then Duchamp worked with the ready-mades and later on in Dada art also kind of really broke down the understanding of art at a time and so in kitsch art specifically the artists were criticized for um for the art simply being made for aesthetic pleasure so it's almost just like over decorative very beautiful very everyday sentimental very sentimental nostalgic yeah so Unfortunately, all of these examples that we have are um, of white um, European males, and that is because of the canon of the history of art. And today, we hope to kind of destabilize that a little bit by looking at a South African artist a little bit later in our episode. But I just want to make a side note that the fountain, which is a very famous ready-made, actually the one that made Marcel Duchamp so famous, it's an, a, a urinal that was placed upside down and he just scribbled his name on it. It wasn't even his name. He just signed it, Armat, um, and it was placed in a, a very esteemed gallery and it caused a lot of shock. And everyone knows this artwork, I think most people know this artwork and can connect it to Duchamp, but there is a conspiracy that this artwork was actually made by a woman. And we just wanted to mention that and to reference the podcast Art Curious. There's an episode where Jennifer Dassel speaks about this conspiracy. She actually researched it. So just a side note on that, um, on that reference. Yeah, so it's so fascinating. I think upon researching or fact-checking that, we also found that, uh, for example, Jackson Pollock, which is the classic, my five-year-old could do it painting, of all the, he threw the paint onto the canvas. Automatic art. Automatic yeah. art. And there's also theories that that was actually a woman behind that. And in philosophy, a famous example is also Sartre, the philosopher, and Simone de Beauvoir, and they were in partnership. But a lot of Simone de Beauvoir's was also read as Sartre's original thought. So this, once again, even in how we view and value art, exposes kind of the crack of who decides and who represents the art that is being valued. But just going back to the idea of kitsch art and replicating art, so all of a sudden it's not just this is my masterpiece, but it's maybe you can take a page out of a magazine, replicate it with your own signature, 
put it in a white cube type of museum and now it's labeled art. Mm. And part of that was part of the project of de-aestheticizing art. So that is kind of what Duchamp wanted to do. He wanted to show that art is not just a beautiful object, but it's an intellectual activity. So it's not just something that involves the senses and the emotions, but rather it's something uh, that asks critical questions and that provokes certain feelings or emotions beyond just the everyday senses but rather yeah a more critical perspective i guess is exactly the way to and it. an interesting idea also coming out of um the way that andy warhol and marcel duchamp specifically that what they did with their work was to actually speak about the space that the work was in so it, it dealt as much with the identity of art as it did with the space that art was exhibited in. So the, the artwork of Marcel Duchamp, that urinal called The Fountain, was placed in a, in a gallery where Marcel Duchamp actually found a little loophole and he realized that and the members that was part of the society that could enter art into the space only had to pay for their membership and then they could enter any art. So as much as the artworks were then criticized when they were exhibited and looked at critically, the, the, the process of entering an artwork was actually really easy. Be, that being said, the people that could be members back then was white bourgeoisie European males, but nonetheless, he tried to flip this or, or, or bring out this loophole in the space and then place this artwork in and then it created controversy. So his artworks today and the artworks of Andy Warhol and in a sense the artworks of kitsch artists are valued because of what they said about the art scene at that time and what they made possible for artists after the moment of creating that artwork and that shock and that discussion within that art space. This uh, kind of idea, this is a change in, sh in shift of how we consider art. Um, if you value art more for its conceptual value, and that's basically what is what contemporary art is all about. Um, and this idea then explains why an artwork sometimes becomes famous or sold for massive amount of money because of what it made possible in the artwork. So it expanded the field by this audacious action of the artist to create that artwork in the first place. Um, and once again, this, the, by doing so, it introduces new questions, new ways of defining what is art and how do we value art. So in a sense, when you stop in front of an artwork or if someone points out to me like, this is such a ridiculous artwork, it's a blank canvas that is, because there's actually artworks like that, there's blank canvases hanging in famous museums <laughs> and they're valued at millions sometimes of dollars. The fact that we are having the conversation about that artwork is what is determining its value. So I know this is a little bit of a mindfuck, but if you pause and you stand in front of an artwork and you are like, this is ridiculous, that artwork has reached a success in the contemporary field of art because you are talking about it. That begs the question, what is a successful artwork? And maybe a successful artwork is only determined by a conversation. <laughs> Okay, so this discussion then introduces a new question 
uh, that we can maybe speak about, and that is the relationship between artworks and representations. Oh, because and representation in visual studies for those that had it. When you say the word representation, I think a lot of students go, ah, representation. <laughs> There's so much to be said about it. I think we're still going to talk about like representation and signifying and signifier and all of those things in the future one day. The medium is the message. Oh my god, but not today. <laughs> um, so, I mean, this is once again coming back to the banana, the thought banana and the fridge and the banana on the wall for $120,000. So there's some distinction that we make between artworks and the objects that they resemble. So an artwork inspired by a banana and the banana is not the same thing. A classic example of this is the painting by René Magritte that is called This Is Not A Pipe and it's a painting of a pipe. It's actually a French title but I can't speak French. So um, this artwork is famous because it, it points out this distinction between an object that the artwork resembles and the actual artwork. So it's it's almost a realistic painting of a pipe. So it is a pipe, but it's not a pipe. It's a painting of a pipe. <laughs> yes, that is why this episode is Art History or Philosophy of Art 101, because for those who've already studied this, you might think, oh my word, repeating this, but remembering back how, it felt, how I felt when I heard that for the first time, I was like, wow, this is so cool. Um, that would be like us being like, this is not a podcast. <laughs> Okay, so this, I, all of these ideas, as we said, they have been said many times before. It's not really anything new or groundbreaking in the art history or philosophy of art world. But this, when we started having this discussion, we were really curious, like, what does kitsch art and the whole thing about the value of art um, mean in South Africa at the moment? And how can we consider it in the South African context? Before we continue with the episode, we just interrupt your listening experience with a brief note from the ERA team. So today we want to talk a little bit about what Patreon is. We've had a few questions like you keep talking about Patreon and how we can support you on Patreon, but it seems to be a little bit unclear. And Jana thought about a very funny um, analogy. So please tell us about this analogy. Yeah, okay, so to clarify what this elusive Patreon membership is that we've been promoting. So basically, we are have, offering a service where we are talking about ideas, stimulating your mind, and what we ask in return, if you feel abundant, is that um, you can, you, there's two ways of supporting us. And the one way, you can think about it like every month, you give us a packet of chips. Like maybe uh, not the most expensive chips, like maybe fritos or, sim or, or like um, cheese curls or flings, like those <laughs> nice MSG chips <laughs> um, for like $2 a month. Um, and you subscribe and that just means like you like us, you are like, you guys are cool, we're going to give you a packet of chips. Yeah. <laughs> or you can be like, okay, I, I hear you with these chips, but maybe we want like nachos night and you are going to buy Santa Ana's Santa Ana's nachos uh, for $4 a month. So a little bit more upmarket, but then in return, you can come to our laundromat. 
So, um, so it's like buying us a packet of chips before you come to a party and the party is the laundromat. We have this ideas club regularly. We're going to have one once a month this year. And if you're a Patreon member, you don't have to pay to come to the laundromat and it actually works out cheaper. So you can come for free. And in that way, the packet of chips that you give us in this analogy goes towards the sustainability of this project so that Jana and I can get more equipment like this beautiful mic so that we can expand the project and maybe in the future um, hire some people to help us with the administration. So we would really like to make this project one of our major projects because at the moment it's a side hustle. So if you support us on Patreon, um, we can actually invest in the project more time and energy. And uh, you might come across on many podcasts and more creative endeavors that like Patreon is a well-recognized international platform that basically works and operates as like a newsletter subscription. And as our Patreon following grow, we can also expand on some of the benefits that we can offer you. Like maybe one day we can have uh, aired merch or something. In the future, we might release our episodes a little bit earlier to the Patreon members. All of this will be possible once we have more Patreon members. So consider to support us in this way. And thank you if you do, if you already do and if you are planning on doing so. Thank you for the chippies. So today we want to speak about the South African artist called Kimang Walehulere. And he was born in 1984 in Cape Town and lives in Johannesburg. He has a BA and Fine Arts degree from the University of Witwatersrand. And he has featured in many exhibitions at esteemed galleries and has won multiple awards for his multimedia installations. So we're going to look at his artwork from this lens of using kitsch objects and we're going to get there. But I think Jana's just quickly going to introduce some of the themes that he actually deals with in his work by using these kitsch objects in a new way. Yeah, so while he... He touches on many themes, especially regarding identity and apartheid and once again, representation. But there's one of the objects for which his art is famed and it really stood out to us as we started this conversation. So most of Wale Ulere's art and exhib exhibitions, especially um, famously in the Stevenson Gallery, includes these characteristic porcelain dogs, which have become like a, a very, as I said, characteristic feature of his work. And I just want to say, um, within the Afrikaans community, uh, someone that has also brought this dog, these dogs into consciousness again, but in a completely different way from Waleulere is Sculpt Poseidonode. So on his Instagram, he will often post videos and pictures of these dogs. And in his home setting, they are truly kitsch objects, but Waleulere does something different with them. Yeah, so, and, and also um, Stephanie Conradi. Yes, true. And you will see on Ryan Pedro's poetry, What's the Bundle in English? Compilation of poetry poems? Poetry book? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but one of and, and on his uh, recent Dichbundle, you also see on the cover Stephanie Conradi's work and you also see those pink ceramic winkies, those like mm -hmm. those objects. So I came across this extract on a Media 24 article, but I couldn't find the author of the article. But it really exposed this link that we are trying to make today between Vale Valeri's work. So in the one installation called A, Dog, A Dog's Life, 
he draws uh, from his experience of black bodies under the apartheid regime as much as he does the experience of black bodies in the post-apartheid space. And in, in doing so, he talks about like the politics of power, privilege, possession, and equality, and poverty in South Africa. And all of the pieces and the way he curated them or presented them are like rich and layers. And it, you ask really like personal uh, questions because it's kind of very sentimental or nostalgic to a certain extent of his own experiences. And one, as, and as the author of this article writes, one of its most iconic elements is kitschy porcelain dogs with pointed ears. And they are a nod to the 1930 short story called The Dog Killers by the forgotten black South African writer R.R.R. Glomo. And what is interesting is the author notes that the viewer is confronted by the dog as a representation of the value of black bodies during apartheid, especially in juxtaposition of another object like suitcases. And so the artist is really using these like heavy traumatic events, but also then using this symbol that's actually represented in South African artists in anything from like the white Afrikaner showcase to these like kitsch objects that are now like worn by hipsters and actually the traumatic memory of apartheid and black bodies. Yeah, so these dogs and these objects actually really bring together this idea of how the representation of an object and how an object is placed in a space can actually say something beyond the significance of only the object. So when you buy this porcelain doll for 50 rand at a thrift shop, it says something completely different from what Wahelure says in his work uh, by the way that he's placing it and the significance that he is giving the object. So that was just a very interesting bringing together for us of how an object that is so ordinary can all of a sudden change when a new light is shone on it. And often it is the light of the gallery, or it is the light of the gaze, or it is the light of the artist's intention. And this brings us to the way that culture has an influence on art. So it leaves us with some questions. And just as a side note, like we are not just trying to say that you have kitsch art on the one spectrum and that those then that use kitsch objects, that's the only way of doing art. Because I know, for example, Milan Kundera in his book, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, has a whole different understanding of kitsch in a more political sense. That's maybe something we'll do another episode on someday. But just for this mini-sode, we are really prompted to think, like, what are the implications of this kitsch art movement on how we view and value art on the African continent? And we can contrast it with examples from African crafts that you can buy that's also an object that has been replicated and that is bought and sold for various and very nuanced and complex reasons and then on the other hand you have what we call the kachel kakis or I don't know like those things in that showcase with all the little you know like skull crusader note trying to make kachel kakis a thing again basically. Yeah it's like um, objects that don't really have a purpose and they're beautiful to the owner, but they may be a little bit strange to people from outside. Like Tandwerhis. Yes. Um, <laughs> what like you garden gnomes. gnomes. <laughs> yes. So, so you, 
and it's often tied to, like Jana said earlier in our research, like this, the, the, the collective unconscious almost, or like the unconscious of a culture. So in South Africa, the showcase is a very specific example in Afrikaner homes. I'm not sure if it's only Afrikaner homes, yeah. that's just from my context, but I know that both of my grandmas and my mother, in a sense, also has her own version of this, where it's objects that's beautiful to her but that might be a little bit strained like small porcelain dolls or um yeah i mean i have a pinterest board and mine is filled with things that i pick up in nature like i have bird eggs on there and things like that and in a sense i am putting a new value or a new meaning to these objects that are ordinary by placing them in a specific space with a specific light on them. Yeah, so Nicoline, as an artist, can use some of those nostalgic and sentimental objects uh, to rework them and to elicit certain responses. But me, for example, I have a snow globe collection uh, <laughs> that are semi-broken about all the places I've traveled to, and it's quite kitsch, but I haven't done anything with it. It's just my snow globe collection. And maybe if I now put it in the podcast and write some long thing about it, it can become art. But for yeah. now, it's just... Snow globe. <laughs> it's just snow and the thing is also kitsch art the word kitsch means trash so initially it was called trash because people didn't understand it but if you look at how we view Treshikov today I would say his art is not really looked at it the same way even though it's still called kitsch art there's kind of a different value connected yeah. to it now right exactly it, kitsch art is still art it's, it's, it's become not... kind of avant-garde in retrospect, in a weird way, where at that point it was rear guard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and, and on that point of how the things can swift of time and context, uh, for example, during this pandemic, the Zaitz Mokka Museum, which is South Africa's um, Museum of Contemporary African Art, uh, that houses a lot of the artworks that we have just described as, uh, you know, art with value, I guess. Um, but now during the pandemic, they started in, uh, or the curator started an installation with that featured an people, exhibition. an exhibition, sorry, yes, that's the right mm -hmm. word. Anyone could bring their art. Uh, Nicoline, you said they were all, long queues. Yeah, but it was all Capetonian artists were invited to bring art and anyone. There was literally no like system of... of no criteria. Yes, system of criteria. And, and so that is like, once again, in the same way that Duchamp kind of flipped the movement and, and asked, okay, but if this is in a gallery, then what is art and what is the gallery and what is the space and what does it mean? What does it mean for people's art to be, for everyday art to now be featured in the Museum of Contemporary African Art? But once again, by doing so, it reflected a certain time. What does it mean to be an artist in the pandemic? pandemic? What does it mean to create in a mm. pandemic? And why is this the only time in which the museum has decided to kind of have an open access policy. And also, what does it mean when the curator has power to open the doors? Because there's also, like we said, like culture um, influences art. And, it, and in the end, the consensus over what makes a good art piece is decided by who has power. So any artist couldn't walk in at any point to hang their artwork in the Zypes 
only when the curator said that it was possible to do so, they could. And if you entered the art space to kind of look at a, and do a performance, maybe like a protest performance or something like that, to just bring your artwork and assert it in the museum at any point, what would that thing say about the space versus opening the doors and saying, okay, now you're allowed. And also now Tani Ani's artwork that normally <laughs> hangs in, in the Hoekwinkel in Durbanville is hanging inside Smoka next to an artist that has been working for 20 years to create a career. What does that also say about the accessibility of spaces and the accessibility of art and again the value of art so it's a very interesting exhibition that example yeah and i think kind of in closing or what i take away from this episode is firstly it's important to ask questions about art like part of demystifying art is trying to it's not necessarily fixing on like today we are going to decide what is the definition of art but rather it is important to ask these philosophical questions about the value of art because mostly the people who ask those questions are the ones who change the canon mm -hmm. absolutely and to always take into consideration how important the gaze is i just want to come back to the african craft objects we can ask who is the african art objects created for and if you look in south africa at the craft markets um, it's often for a european audience and how are those objects read are they read as an exotic object from Africa or are they actually looked at as a special object made by hand by a specific person, a specific artist from a specific place. Often um, these objects are just seen as like a general kind of exotic object yeah. from Africa. A souvenir yes. or um, you know something that some people even buy out of sympathy because yes. um, people are like okay I need to support this person because it's a third world country and so there's a lot of layered things here that we can problematize and so when we speak about the Tchikov in Mr. Price's home and we speak about the little elephants and lions that you can buy at a market it's not necessarily the same conversation and that is because the context and the timeline in which the, the art or the objects are created differs but once again if an, an artist like Lea Rule uses some of those objects uh, in a different way it's still we are able to discern between the dog in the pawn shop and the art in the gallery exactly so please reach out to us if you want to tap into this conversation because i think there can be a lot of controversial opinions and um, we'd really be interested to hear what do you think is the value of art what is art and what who determines absolutely it. and like always we are just dropping a rock in water and the way that it ripples out is the way that our audience engage with us and reach back so if you have anything to say we'd really like to hear how it resonates with you and this um, topic was actually suggested by an audience member so in that way you can also become part of Podcasting. Podcasting can often sometimes be quite passive. So we're trying to engage in uh, back and forth with our audience. So if you have an interesting topic that you want us to unpack very shortly, please give us that suggestion. 
Thank you for listening to Eric Podcast. Um, you can find all our social links in the description. And we appreciate any support or donations. It can be in the form of word of mouth, supporting us on Patreon or liking our content on Instagram. Uh, so be sure to also check out our social media. Everything is linked in the show notes below. Um, we hope you enjoyed this episode and remember, stay stimulated. stimulated.